1: Hello, I'm Laura Landon, and welcome to the New Books Network. Those are the famous chimes used on the National Broadcasting Company radio networks from the earliest days of radio in the 1920s. And one of the most distinctive voices heard on the NBC and later the CBS radio networks from those early days was the clear, compelling baritone of the journalist Lowell Thomas. In his new book, The Voice of America, Lowell Thomas and the Invention of 20th Century Journalism, Mitchell Stevens says, I think it's safe to say that never in the history of American journalism has one person told the news to as large a percentage of the American population as Lowell Thomas did in the 1940s at a very crucial time in the history of the United States during the Second World War, the bloodiest in history. Lowell Thomas's voice first appeared on American radio in 1925. But it was a few years later, in 1930, that Thomas began his nightly weekday newscasts that continued for 46 years until May 14, 1976.
0: From Salisbury, Rhodesia, from
2: Moscow, and from Islamabad, Pakistan, comes today's news.
0: Good evening, everybody. This is Lowell Thomas.
1: That's the opening of Lowell Thomas's last radio newscast, courtesy of the audio archives at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York. But as Mitchell Stevens points out in his biography, Thomas did not confine himself to radio journalism. He embraced all of the new media in the 20th century as he travelled to faraway places and brought back films and photos to share with audiences, first at his many illustrated lectures and later on television. Stevens points out, for example, that two million people all over the world attended Lowell Thomas's illustrated lectures on the First World War exploits of Lawrence of Arabia and the Arab struggles against the Turkish Ottoman Empire. Those lectures made both Thomas and T.E. Lawrence household names. During the Second World War, Lowell Thomas's voice was also heard by millions of filmgoers in movie-tone newsreels. According to Mitchell Stevens, Thomas invented a 20th-century style of fact-based journalism that was authoritative and nonpartisan. And as you'll hear in the interview that follows, Stevens writes about Lowell Thomas's long career from the point of view of a journalism historian, the author of A History of News, a text widely used in journalism history courses. Stevens, who is a professor of journalism at the Carter Institute at New York University, is the author of five other books on journalism and media. He joined us to talk about The Voice of America, Lowell Thomas, and the Invention of 20th Century Journalism from an NYU studio in New York City. The interviewer is Canadian journalist Bruce Wark. Well, thanks
0: so much for joining us, Mitch, to talk about your new book.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, I have to start by asking you about the title of your new book, uh, The Voice of America, Lowell Thomas and the Invention of 20th Century Journalism. Uh, what does that title mean, especially that part about the invention of 20th century journalism?
2: Well, the first uh, word after the, uh, after the article, voice, is really important, because this is a man who had an exceptional voice and... Uh, and one of is certainly the three best known voices in America for two three decades and and he also spoke to America in a way no one before him really had uh and the second part of the title the invention of 20th century journalism is something that really fascinates me as a journalism professor and a journalism historian uh this kind of journalism that many of us grew up into if you were born in the 20th century you were born into a kind of journalism uh was did not always exist it did have to be invented uh and uh and and I think Lowell Thomas played a major role in the creation of this type of of journalism. It's what we call traditional journalism today. And I think 21st century journalism is uh, in many ways defining itself against this 20th century journalism that Lowell Thomas helped invent.
0: Well, I'll ask you about that, but first the voice part of your title. Um, you describe uh, his voice as large, deep, resonant, and precise in one place and in another a voice that was rich and bracing even a bit tart uh, where did that voice come from
2: i think he was probably born into part of it from his mother's side he says his mother who was a very religious uh, woman uh, would have the largest the loudest voice in church the voice that was easiest to hear in the choir and the other half Came from his father, who was obsessed with the importance of speaking clearly with elocution, and he gave him uh, intensive instruction in uh, in speaking uh, when Loa was a child.
0: A kind of instruction that we don't do anymore.
2: No, we don't. And uh, and and boy, this served him in good stead. I mean, you could hear his voice always. He was an incredibly clear speaker. He, uh, he could captivate an audience in many ways, but in part through his voice. And when he first auditioned for the radio, uh, it was a really natural fit.
0: Let's listen to a bit of uh, Lowell Thomas's voice here. Uh, this is from a broadcast uh, in 1957. Vice President Nixon received with popular acclaim and royal honors in Morocco today in the city of Rabat. Mobbed by crowds of Muslims, dark-robed men, veiled women, barefoot children, Dick Nixon says he likes personal contact, of which there was a lot today, as he shook outstretched hands and patted the heads of children. Then at the royal palace, Sultan Mohammed Ben Yusuf received him with an honor that made Moroccans gape, having him take a gold chair at the right of the sultan, which position by custom is reserved for royalty. So that was the voice of uh, Lowell Thomas with his famous uh, radio broadcast, Radio Newscast, uh, in 1957. Um, Mitch Stevens, you were saying, though, that the title of your book, uh, the second part, the invention of twentieth century journalism, uh, you said some things about that mainstream journalism and so forth. How else would you uh, characterize twentieth century journalism, the kind that uh, lowell thomas practiced
2: i 've been thinking a lot about uh, about th- what what was what he introduced or helped introduce to journalism and what we 're losing today? Uh, because journalism is undergoing so many changes today and, uh, and, and dealing with some of its limitations today in very interesting ways. And the two words that most, well, I would say three words that most come to mind. Uh, the first is authoritative. I think it was in uh, his voice came across as an authoritative voice. And I think we we got used to that in the 20th century. He was followed by uh, Edward R. Murrow and his authoritative voice and by uh, Huntley and Brinkley and then Walter Cronkite and then Tom Brokaw and Dan Rather and Peter Jennings. Uh, I th- the second word that comes to mind is trusted. I think, it, it you know, this voice was heard uh at six forty five each evening on a fifteen minute newscast, and there weren't really other voices almost most of the time on this newscast. It was just Lowell Thomas's voice at a very a prime spot on uh in the radio schedule because he came on right before Amos and Andy a show with some unpleasant depictions of African Americans, unfortunately, but that was uh, very widely listened to. And uh and he came, he came in at the dinner hour or right after the dinner hour. And I collected, there's so many stories, uh, from around the United States and Canada of, of people who were eating dinner. And then when Lowell Thomas would come on, all conversation would stop and they'd listen for 15 minutes. And, uh, as one, one person wrote, uh, as soon as he said, uh, so long until tomorrow his sign off then uh, then d- dessert would be brought out and people would eat so this was a, a family institution in the united states in the 1930s and 1940s and into the 1950s and and he was a trusted character somebody said if lowell thomas said it, it must be true so authoritative trusted and and the final word, which is, I think, really significant for understanding what 20th century journalism became, is nonpartisan. You know, Lowell Thomas had a politics. He uh, supported Republicans from Teddy Roosevelt to through Ronald Reagan. Uh, the sponsor of his show for a long time was Sun Oil Company, owned by the, uh, uh, the very right wing Pew family. And, uh, who were sort of like the Koch brothers, uh, today in their politics. But still, Lowell Thomas tried to play it as he put it down the middle. And he didn't want to alienate Democratic listeners or Republican listeners. You know, we've, you know, as a journalism historian, as a journalism historian, I had researchers counting the number of times he mentioned, uh, president franklin roosevelt the number of times he mentioned uh, his uh, his challengers or during the hoover roosevelt election how many times president hoover was mentioned how many times president roosevelt was mentioned and what negative or positive things he said about them he was very balanced he really aimed for a nonpartisan newscast and it didn't have to be that way there were other lesser figures In radio news who were much more partisan, anti-Roosevelt, for example, or pro-Roosevelt. And it wasn't that way in a lot of other countries. You know, France ended up with a more partisan uh, radio news and then television news. A number of uh, Western countries did. But the United States had a tradition for a long time that broadcast news was supposed to be nonpartisan, play it down the middle. And this can be traced, too, to Lowell Thomas.
0: Well, Mitch, let's talk a bit now about uh, Lowell Thomas's background. He was born in, Hawaii, in Ohio, but uh, he grew up in a Colorado gold mining town. Uh, How would you say that his early experiences in the uh, American West shaped him and his uh, approach to journalism? Uh,
2: You know, he had an amazing childhood uh, at 9,000 feet in the Rocky Mountains on one of the slopes of Pikes Peak in a town that had a huge vein of gold underneath it. And there were mines all over the place. The whole town was undermined by gold mines. And so he grew up among miners. He worked in the mines. He had a job writing essay for uh, mining companies, picking up gold samples, taking them to be uh, uh, analyzed. Uh, he was on horseback all the time. His father was a town doctor and would also take him on uh, geological expeditions, collecting rocks. It was an outdoors childhood. And it was a a childhood lived among some real characters, uh, people who had traveled the world looking, trying to make their fortune. And this uh, this sort of boom or bust monta- tali- mentality, this bet your bottom dollar mentality, uh, was, you know, became very much his mentality. He was a risk taker. He uh, didn't worry about money. He was always uh, willing to uh, gamble on himself.
0: One thing that, that surprised me as I read your book was the fact that uh, Lowell Thomas earned four university degrees and uh, served for a brief time on the law faculty at Princeton. Um, yet, as you point out in your book, he was more a storyteller than academic. Um, I'm wondering how you would characterize his academic career and his intellectual approach to things.
2: Well, um, first of all, we have to understand that this was a man who impressed people quickly. Uh, and, uh, you know, so when he shows up at law school in Chicago to take some night courses, he, uh, the dean of the law school very quickly asks him to teach a course himself for the, uh, for the entire student body in public speaking. Uh, when he enrolls in the graduate program, at Princeton University one of the few people from out west to be studying there uh certainly one of the uh, least rich people around at Princeton in the graduate program at the time uh he studied for for a year and then they asked him to join the faculty so he impressed people and he also he you know he did what he needed to do he accomplished things he showed up uh at college in uh in Indiana and, uh, he, he enrolled in all the freshman courses and he thought this is pretty easy. I think I'll take the, fr- the sophomore courses at the same time. And, uh, he ended up graduating with a BA and a BS in two years. And then he went to Denver University and got another BA and the, plus a master's degree. So, uh, his father loved education, and so there was a lot of pressure on him to, uh, to uh, go to school. And boy, did he uh, accomplish it well, although he was not an intellectual, and uh, a library doing research was never the right place for him.
0: In fact, I think he taught oratory at the university.
2: Yeah, he taught, you know, he was always ready to teach, uh, teach speaking and teach public speaking which was a, a you know a very important discipline in uh, universities in those days and uh, he knew it he understood it he had strong opinions on the subject don't read from a prepared text anytime i read from a prepared text i feel lowell looking under looking over my shoulders scornfully
0: now um, lowell thomas helped pay for his education Um, by working as a reporter at Chicago newspapers, starting, I think, around 1913, when he was only 21. And in fact, you point out in your book that he actually occupied a desk next to Ben Hecht, the co-author of The Front Page, the famous play that you characterize about the hijinks and low adventures of early 20th century journalism. Um, How did that rough-and-tumble a Chicago newspaper world, shape Lowell Thomas's journalism?
2: Well, I think he, uh, he got quite a training in journalism, not always in a positive way from his, uh, from his two years working for a newspaper in Chicago. Uh, this was American journalism at perhaps its wildest. Chicago was a pretty wild place in those days, uh, with, uh, lots of drinking lots of keeping reporters sober was a big issue at the newspaper he worked for lots of crime lots of uh you know uh illicit romance and uh corruption and lowell thomas covered it all and uh you know this this period in Chicago journalism is well captured, as you said, in uh, the play by Ben Hecht and Charles MacArthur, the uh, the front page made into a wonderful movie, which I highly recommend. His Girl Friday made into a few movies, but that's one of the best versions of it. And uh, you know, uh, not the most ethical journalism uh, all the time, as I like to put it. Uh, Lowell had two big scoops in his. Two years in Chicago journalism, and one of them was really true. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> yes, um, uh, I read about the one where he actually invented an interview with an heiress, Helen Morton, I think, and uh, they printed it as you know, obviously, as though he had conducted the interview, but it was uh, really fictitious.
2: Yeah, he made it. He made up. A- an interview with uh, with the, this woman, in the heir to the Morton Salt fortune, uh or, you know, near Chicago, and uh, kind of, sort of, got caught. He thought in those days people had a much looser attitude towards those things, alas, than we do today. Today, you'd be fired immediately for that. Uh, I think properly. Uh, but, you know, Ben Hecht, who share you know, who had the, the desk right across from his, uh, was known for inventing things like the great Chicago earthquake. And he and the photographer dug a trench in the park out there and went into his landlady's house and broke some dishes and got it on the front page, uh, Hecht claims. And so making up stories wasn't considered the big deal it is today. Uh, but, uh. But but it, it was an unfortunate period in, uh, you know, certainly from my point of view, in uh, Lowell's career as a journalist.
0: Now, one thing that uh, strikes me about this is that, uh, as you point out in your book... Chicago newspaper journalism of that day was pretty local, pretty uh, parochial. And yet uh, Lowell Thomas went on to become a great international journalist, a great internationalist in his radio broadcasts. Um, uh, I guess it's the changing media and the changing reach of media from local to national to international that occurred during uh, Lowell Thomas's career.
2: It occurred during Lowell Thomas's career, this switch to a more international perspective, and I think Lowell Thomas played a major role in it because once you uh, uh, y- y- you know Chicago was interested in stories about Chicago, and oh yes, World War I was starting, and uh, you know when he worked for newspapers in Denver and they were interested in stories about Denver. there might be a story about uh, something happened in in Sweden. If they were giving an award to somebody from Denver. And, you know, and it was sort of true in New York too. It was, uh, journalism was a primarily a local business and the newspapers were all local. And in 1930, Lowell Thomas, who came from this, uh, this newspaper journalism background, took over, uh, after a few months, the first national network. Radio newscasts that could be heard by people all around the country. And uh, and that really changed the nature of news. Now, a different person taking over such a newscast might still have focused on just the United States and what was going on in the United States. But Lowell had, uh, you know, he, he was a man who uh, was really interested in the world and, you know, already beginning to travel the world and uh, and actually, his two news writers were also people with uh, international backgrounds, uh, you know, immigrant parents or uh, you know pe- people who paid attention to events overseas. So so this newscast introduced some very interesting international characters to American listeners in the 1930s. Characters like uh, uh, like uh, Franco in Spain like Hitler in Germany, like uh, Churchill in England, like Stalin in Russia. So this, and, and uh, in some ways, this newscast was preparing the United States for the international role it was uh, going to have to pay. play.
1: You're listening to a New Books Network interview with Mitchell Stevens, author of The Voice of America, Lowell Thomas and the Invention of 20th Century Journalism. It's the spring of 1915, and Lowell Thomas is on a train heading west from Chicago, carrying a brand new tool he would need to write about his travels. Here's an excerpt from Chapter 3. Amongst the luggage Lowell had carried on board was one of the latest advances in human communication, a portable typewriter. Newspaper men had been early adopters of typewriters. Lowell would describe himself as helpless without one. So before he set out on this journey, Lowell had managed to obtain a Corona 3. This machine, as he often called it, had debuted in 1912 and had a carriage that folded down on top of its keyboard, enabling it to tuck inside a relatively trim case. The Corona was not quite, in today's terms, a laptop. Though Lowell sometimes balanced it there, effective operation required that it rest on something harder, flatter, and higher than a pair of thighs. Nonetheless, this was the first decent typewriter someone could comfortably lug around.
0: Now, Mitch, uh, so far we've talked about uh, Lowell Thomas's uh, career in radio and his career in Chicago newspapers before that. Um, I was interested in reading in your book uh, an aspect of Lowell Thomas' career that I did not know a lot about. Um, in 1915, uh, equipped with a portable typewriter, uh, fairly new technology in those days, and free railroad passes, Uh, Lowell Thomas set off to see the American West and ended up in Alaska. How did uh, his travels, those travels, shape the next phase of his career?
2: Well, he, you know, he went to Alaska almost by accident. And, uh, you know, a a railroad uh, executive asked him if he wanted to go and try the new railroads out there. And, and he, 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 this is a man who's a great public speaker, who's been trained by his father at public speaking, even though he's so young. And when he got back to the East Coast, this is just when he was starting to go to school at to, uh, study in the graduate program at Princeton, he got into his head the idea that he might lecture on Alaska. Now, it tells you uh, something about uh Lowell Thomas's self-confidence that he was lecturing in Alaska after having spent, uh, you know, about a week in Alaska, most of it sleeping on a ship, but man, he did his homework and he arranged, he found slides and he became a very successful lecturer on Alaska. Later went back and learned more and filmed more and got more images and, uh, and, and lecturing these travelogues as they were called were, uh, were a really interesting form of journalism in those days. People would come and look at pictures, some early film. These are the days before sound film. And listen to people talk about these far corners of the earth. So uh, Lowell put together pretty good business for himself. While he was still in the graduate program at Princeton, traveling around the country, delivering lectures on this new territory of the United States. This is well before it became a state, Alaska.
0: Now, let's talk a bit about the First World War. Um, you actually begin your book with a brief account of Lowell Thomas' encounter with T.E. Lawrence in 1918 during the First World War. Um, why was Lowell Thomas's encounter with Lawrence of Arabia so important for his development as a journalist,
2: uh, T. E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, will, was Lowell's big breakthrough. That's what uh, really made him well known, because that's what really made uh, Lawrence of Arabia well known. So this is uh, Lowell assigned himself to cover World War One with his typical hutzpah, typical self-confidence, and uh, went over there with a cameraman, got some funding. And uh, you know, and covered things in France and Belgium and Italy. Covered some fighting, got some film, uh, film that not many people were getting. And then he heard that British forces had taken Jerusalem from the Turks. They had lib Christians. This is uh, not a, not an attractive account. Had liberated Jerusalem. And uh, Lowell had a nose for news, and he sensed there was a story there, and he got permission from the military authorities to go over to the middle east and While he was in Jerusalem, he uh encountered he tells ver <laughs> he tells a version of this story that probably is not correct. He says he just saw him on the street. he probably was introduced to him in a, another british officer's uh, uh office uh, this uh blue eyed Blonde-haired, short man, beardless man, who was wearing Arab robes, who was in uh, full Arab garb. Uh, This also (laughs) struck somebody uh, with a nose for news as uh, quite interesting. And uh, he spent a lot of time talking to Lawrence, finding out about him. And Lawrence got more and more interesting. Lawrence was riding camels and leading, helping lead. How much of a role he played is still a mad, matter of controversy in the uh, hundred or so books that have been written on the subject afterwards. Uh He uh, he found out that this guy was helping or participating or leading the Arab revolt against the Ottoman Empire, against the Turks. Uh as part of World War One, on the side of the uh, on the side of the British, and uh, Lowell got permission to go to Aqaba, to go to Arabia, and uh, and uh, and camp with uh, La- Lawrence of Arabia, uh, take photos of him on camel. He didn't uh, get to cover any blowing up trains or battles, although he kind of fudged that in some of what he would write about it. He got film of all this and he went back and he ended up producing some lectures on world war one. And by far the most popular was a lecture that had Lawrence of Arabia in it. And partly this is because world war one was a particular grim and bloody war. A lot of the fighting in Europe was just in trenches and and the war was stalemated for a long time. He was, he was, he was, the uh, part of World War I that the sun shone on, riding camels across the desert. And World War I had not been a war that produced lots of heroes. Here was a hero, a British hero. And when he presented the lecture in, uh, in London, it was a huge hit. And the Queen came, and the Prime Minister came, and the French Prime Minister came, and Winston Churchill came, and uh, Rudyard Kipling came. And it was the hottest ticket in London, this story of an Englishman riding camels and helping lead the Arab revolt. He ended up giving this lecture before two million people around the world. Lowell traveled the world, essentially, with with his Lawrence of Arabia lecture. And then he wrote a book on Lawrence of Arabia, the first of those hundred books, the first of the uh, dozens of biographical accounts of Lawrence's uh Adventures, he made La- he made T. Lawrence famous, and uh, he made Lawrence of Arabia pretty much household name for quite a while. And led to uh, the Academy Award winning film on Lawrence Arabia by David Lean.
0: Yes, um, you are talking about these lectures, but in the book you also call them multimedia presentations. Before we even had a term like multimedia, what would it have been like to get a ticket and go there uh, to watch Lowell Thomas present his his lecture? How did he weave things together?
2: So Lowell would take the stage all by himself, this, you know, medium-sized man with a very big boy voice, and he'd... Uh, Invite people to go back to with him to a land of mystery and romance, uh, you know, a stereotypical view of the Middle East. And meanwhile, stationed in the middle of the orchestra in a steel booth wearing an asbestos suit would be Lowell's cameraman, Harry Chase, madly switching between essentially a slide projector and a film camera going back and forth to project images on the screen that Lowell, Lowell would then talk over. Again, these, these are the years before sound film, so this is really your only chance to get narrated film. And, uh, and it, was, it was quite spectacular. You'd be seeing images of the Middle East, some of them colorized by hand. And you'd be seeing film of the pyramids. You'd be seeing film from an airplane. These are early in the days of air travel uh, over the pyramids. And uh, it, it, it was it was a spectacular experience. It was music. He'd have a band playing often. He might have a dancer. Uh, it was uh, quite an evening's entertainment for those days and I think maybe even for our day.
0: Yeah, I guess since the invention of the talkie, the film with sound, um, we've sort of taken that for granted and and can't imagine a time like this when uh, uh, Lowell Thomas would be presenting in effect a film with sound, the sound of his voice narrating what was on the screen. Yeah, and also we live in
2: a world that's been so heavily photographed. There's almost nothing about the about the world, no place in the world, Antarctica, you know, uh, the jungles of Africa and South America, the, uh, you know, we've, we've seen images of all these things. Uh, people hadn't in those days. You know, if somebody comes back from a trip and wants us to sit there and, uh, you know, and go through our, their iPhone and look at all these pictures after a while, we get a little bored. In those days, this was. This is a big thrill. You were seeing something that you hadn't seen before. And he he brought back some of the first photographs and certainly some of the first film of some of these faraway places, Alaska and the Yukon initially, then Arabia, and then uh, Afghanistan. He made it into Afghanistan, another country that didn't really accept a lot of foreigners, in a Buick over the Khyber Pass and across the sands into Alaska, into Afghanistan, where he uh, filmed the Emir, and uh, later into Tibet and uh, and into Antarctica and all these places. A lot of these places, people first saw. Uh, through the work of Lowell Thomas.
0: Well, we've talked about Lowell Thomas's adventures in various media, radio, the use of film and uh, silent film and so on, and newspapers. Um, but I see that uh, in your book, May 3rd, 1939, marked uh, what you say is arguably the country's first television news broadcast from the World's Fair. And uh, that newscast, that first TV newscast was presented by none other than Lowell Thomas opening, I guess, a kind of new chapter in his, uh, technological journalism career.
2: Yeah. Lowell was very alert to new technologies. You know, we think this is a new thing in journalism to have some people who are always up to date on the, on the latest gizmo. And, uh, you know, Lowell was early using a portable typewriter. Lowell was early riding in automobiles. He was early filming from airplanes. He was early on the radio. He was early doing remote radio. He was early with film and his uses of photography. And when TV started reaching the point where you could actually reach a few sets around say New York City on an experimental NBC network uh, who deli- who was the first to deliver the news on, on this new medium well, of course it was lowell thomas and then when NBC decided to do some regular broadcasting to the few thousand TV sets that existed in New York at this time this is nineteen forty what they did is they got Lowell Thomas into a TV studio to do his radio newscast with these gigantic cameras in this overlit studio with very bold makeup on so that, uh, so that he, he had the first regular TV newscast in the United States and maybe the first regular program of any sort in the United States. So another of the uh, many lowell thomas first and uh, now this early tv work was suspended uh because of world war two uh, and uh, when it resumed after the war lowell really didn't want to play around so much with tv because it required him being tied to a studio he liked to do his radio broadcast remote for example from his travels or from ski areas he was a big ski aficionado uh and besides, he was so big. Besides, he was so big in radio. He didn't need TV, but he was the first, really, to do TV news.
0: Yeah, in fact, in your book, you quote—you've got a couple of quotes from him. Um, he says, "On radio, you are accepted as a disembodied voice and given the authority of outer space." T- on TV, he said, "There's no fun looking at the same person night after night."
2: Yeah, he's probably wrong. We've gotten used to looking at the same person—the, uh, you know, the Walter Cronkites, the Anderson Cooper's of the world, night after night. And some of this was an excuse. He just didn't like TV in those days. Meant you had to sit in a hot studio in New York City. He he he'd rather be traveling the world, and he he had it fixed so he could do his radio broadcast as he traveled.
0: Uh, yes, and he he could also do those uh, radio broadcasts from his home in upstate New York.
2: Yeah, Lowell had, you know, quite an interesting uh, country home set up for himself. Uh, a farm he first purchased on this ridge out, uh, above Pauling, New York, about an hour and a half north of Manhattan. And, uh, you know, he bought a house up there. He started entertaining up there. Uh, President Roosevelt... Came up there to, to manage a softball team which would play against Rose uh, Lowell Thomas's team uh, every summer. Babe Ruth uh, played on on Lowell Thomas's softball team at some point. That's how well known Lowell Thomas was, and he got some of his uh, friends to move up there. He got, for example, Edward R. Murrow, to, whose politics were kind of different from. Uh, from Lowell who represented some different things in american journalism he got him to buy a farm up there with edward which edward R. Murrow loved and it, it was it was quite a place and uh, and lowell built a radio studio up the studio up there and he uh, paid for an engineer to stay up there so he could uh, during the nice summer months so he could uh, do his broadcast from uh uh from right outside his home uh, an hour and a half north of manhattan
0: Lowell Thomas, from 1930 on until 1976, when he did his last uh, radio newscast, was uh, a household name and a household voice in so many homes, but uh, during the Second World War and in, in the years after that, he was also a presence in movie theatres. We haven't talked about his movie tone newsreels. Um, what were they like and uh, how did uh, Thomas lend his distinctive voice to those?
2: Well, this is in the heyday of uh, movie going, of film going, when, you know, the average American went to a movie once a week, actually went to the theater. And uh, when they got to the theater, before the feature played, they would play newsreels filled with news from around the world. This is before television news caught on. And if you wanted to see images of Hitler's armies, for example, or you wanted to see images of Washington, D.C., or of uh, Winston Churchill, well, the only way to see him was to go to a movie theater and and watch, this is after film had gained sound, and watch these newsreels. Who should be the host of the largest, the most successful of those newsreels, Fox Movie Tone, but of course, Lowell Thomas. So at once, he was the... Uh, uh, the biggest force in radio news, and he was also the biggest force in newsreels. Indeed, you know, I've, I've, I've looked at these numbers a lot. I think it's safe to say that uh, uh, never in the history of American journalism has one person told the news to as large a percentage of the American population as Lowell Thomas did uh, in the 1940s, at a very crucial time in the history of the United States during World War II, the bloodiest war in the history of the United States, costliest war. Let me just say one other thing. As I uh, travel about promoting this book, the reaction I get from a lot of people, uh, especially a lot of young people, is, wow, here's a guy we never heard of, and look at all the things he's done. And I'm initially taken back by that, taken aback because... This was a guy that everybody had heard of. I mean, he was, you know, if you wanted to talk about, you know, the best-known man in America, well, you know, you'd be talking about Charlie Chaplin, maybe. You'd be talking about Lindbergh. You'd be talking about President Roosevelt. And you'd be talking about Lowell Thomas. Everybody knew Lowell Thomas. And uh, now uh, very few people under the age of 65 know of this man, which says something about journalistic fame. But uh, uh, he, he was just uh, astoundingly well-known from, you know, hosting the most popular radio newscasts, from hosting the most popular newsreels, which were shown twice a week in movie theaters.
0: He also developed uh, what was called Cinerama. What was that? Well,
2: you, you know, we have some uh, large-screen uh, movies now, fairly popular. The first large-screen film Process was called Cinerama. In order to make it, they had to film things using three cameras and project them on a big, wide, curved screen using three projectors. There'd be a little line in between uh, the area where the different uh, where the, the, the three images met, and uh, th- this was wildly popular when it first started. It was a new technology. It was a way of presenting images of the world. And so, of course, who ended up producing the f- most of the first Cinerama films, but Lowell Thomas.
0: And they were popular ones, too, I gather.
2: Some of the uh, most popular movies in the United States for some years in the, the middle of the 1950s were Cinerama films produced by Lowell, Tom- Lowell Thomas. And, uh, and Lowell did what Lowell, do- Lowell always did. He, uh, he went around the world and showed people things from around the world amazing sights from around the world, a tiger hunt in India, for example, or, uh, you know, the pyramids, the wonders of the world, the pyramids of Egypt.
0: And he, yeah, he also did uh, adventure shows and travel shows on TV as well.
2: Yeah, He started, you know, uh, I'm in my 60s now, and uh, most people in my generation remember... Our memory of Lowell Thomas has to do with the show called High Adventure with Lowell Thomas which uh, was shown on C- CBS for a little while in the 1950s and then repeated for a long time and we'd watch the repeats where uh again Lowell Lowell did as was his wont uh travel stuff he'd uh, you know he'd do he'd do a show in New Guinea he'd do a show in uh, the Persian Gulf he'd do a show in Africa and uh, this is one of the ways uh, my generation first saw about the world and first also learned that it was possible, as uh, Tom Brokaw in his recollections on Lowell Thomas puts it, that it was possible to live an adventurous life, that it was possible to travel to these far-off places and see these far-off things. Uh, you know, in some ways, the lonely planet traveling generation was uh, trained by Lowell Thomas.
0: Now, you mentioned earlier that uh, it is, uh, would have astonished people who knew Lowell Thomas and knew of him in his heyday that today he's so little known. In, in fact, he published more than 50 books in his time as well as all the other things he did. Um, you say that uh, maybe his not being known uh, says a lot today about journalistic fame. Um, what do you mean by that?
2: Yeah, there's a, I found a quote from some newspaper writer shortly after Lowell died saying, can you imagine there may be a day when not everybody has heard of Lowell Thomas? That seemed unimaginable, uh, when he died in the, in 1981. And now, of course, that's the case. And I believe that's typical of journalistic fame. Uh, I'm already encountering a lot of people who've never heard of Walter Cronkite, which would have been unimaginable to uh, my generation. Uh, I, my students now have not heard of Tom Brokaw. And I, I think one of the reasons for this is, you know, if you write novels, well, though, we still read old novels. If you wrote uh, music or played music, well, we still listen to old music. We still look at old movies, but nobody spends much time looking at old news. And so, uh, you know, we're really not looking at o- Lowell Thomas's newsreels. We're not looking, listening to Lowell Thomas's news broadcast, as you know, exciting as as they were at the time. And so, journalists tend to be uh, forgotten rather quickly.
0: The nature of news, I suppose. Yes. Uh,
2: let me let me uh, add one thing, which is Lowell. Thomas told the news to this huge percentage of the American people and was known and trusted uh, and was considered authoritative by such a huge percentage of the American people. And he was followed in that by people like Huntley and Brinkley and Walter Cronkite and Tom Brokaw, Dan Rather and Peter Jennings. There's nobody really who is that well-known in journalism today. There's nobody in journalism today who is that trusted by such a wide swath of the American people. There's nobody in journalism today that has quite the authority that a Lowell Thomas, and he was the first of them, had, or a Walter Cronkite had, or an Edward R. Murrow had. I mean, that's one way journalism is changing. 20th century journalism was very much a time of these uh, incredibly well known, larger than life, authoritative, nonpartisan, trusted figures. 21st century seems to be some journalism, seems to be something different.
0: Thank you very much, Mitchell Stevens, uh, for speaking about your book on Lowell Thomas. I enjoyed uh, reading it immensely. It's a great read. Thank you.
2: Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation.
1: You've been listening to a New Books Network interview with Mitchell Stevens, author of the new book, The Voice of America, Lowell Thomas and the Invention of Twentieth-Century Journalism. Mitchell Stevens is a professor of journalism at New York University. His other books include A History of News and The Rise of the Image, The Fall of the Word, published by Oxford University Press. The interviewer was Canadian journalist Bruce Wark. Thanks to Adrian Mahai for technical operations in New York. And thanks to James A. Canavino Library Archives and Special Collections at Marist College, USA, for granting permission to use excerpts from Lowell Thomas's radio newscasts. I'm Laura Landon for the New Books Network. In the words of Lowell Thomas, so long until tomorrow. <laughs>